And so in that moment, when my mom was having that emotional breakdown, I forgot my anger towards God or my parents' divorce and everything in that moment. I knew that the one thing I could do is pray and it could make a difference. This is Camus. And this is Kylie. Welcome to God is Real, God is Good, a podcast where we collect stories about God working in people's lives through big miraculous ways all the way down to small everyday things. Welcome to this week's episode of God is Real, God is Good. This week I have with me Stephen Farr. Well, Kylie, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah. This is really exciting. I'm excited to have you. I don't know a lot of your story. I heard some of it briefly kind of at the wilderness wondering thing, but I don't know a lot about it. So I'm excited. Um, So we pray before we get started. Ready. All right. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing Stephen and I together to um, record this episode. And thank you that your Holy Spirit is going to be with us as we do this. Um, please send the words to Stephen's mind um, for the stories to tell and give me the right questions to ask as we do this. Um, just let the stories that are told and the words that are spoken touch the ears of the people that will listen to this. And please just, Lord, through this, help um, glory be brought to your name and help um, a clearer picture and better understanding of you be brought to the minds of the listeners. And Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Where are you from, Stephen? Originally or somewhere in between all of that? originally from yeah that's a great question to start with um because really i've actually lived all over the place um yes i was born in washington but raised in oregon for the first six to eight years of my life then i lived in port angeles washington all the way through about hmm, 2004 i would say and then from there in 2005 i was back in oregon i did a short stint in san diego california and recently uh, I lived in College Place, Washington, and Berrien Springs for three years with a detour to Pasco, Washington in between. So as you can see, Everywhere. Um, over my entire life, I've been moving a lot. But right now, in this very present moment, I am in Pendleton Pilot Rock, Oregon, in the northeastern corner kind of of, of Oregon State. Yeah. All right. Cool. So that's where you're from. All right. Now tell us a little bit about your religious background. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Yeah, I have a, <clears throat> I have a wild religious background. Um, from the time I was a little boy, I remember my dad preaching. Um, I remember my dad um, leading music around the campfire. And I remember seeing the looks of on the faces of the people as they were watching my dad preach and and listening to what he was saying or just joining in around campfires, listening to the music when he was playing guitar. And I remember seeing that something was going on in that moment that was more than just my dad talking to people or music being played. You know, I, I could see, I didn't understand it at the time, but I could really see like the presence of the Holy Spirit, like leading people's hearts. And so from the time I was a little boy, I was fascinated. Now, as a child, I didn't really understand the difference between being a Seventh-day Adventist or not being a Seventh-day Adventist or being a Baptist or being a Catholic or being, you know, any denomination or a non-denominational Christian or any of that stuff. When I was a kid, it was simply, you know, there's the Bible, there's Jesus, there's God. And so as a child, I didn't really know that my dad was actually a part of a self-supporting ministry that was sort of an offshoot from the Adventist church, right? Now, the interesting thing is, is, I can remember as a child that 
you know, my dad was a part of the reform movement, Three Angels Ministries, a couple of the other offshoots from Adventism that are self-supporting ministries. And they're not necessarily not Adventist, but, you know, they have different views. And so it's funny that you asked that question, because I actually remember as a child, like being with my dad, watching him and his friends picketing Seventh-day Adventist churches and telling people to come out of Babylon, you know, because oh, wow. they were they were reforming, you know, they were going back to the roots of what the pioneers believed. And, you mm-hmm. know, I, 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 even as a child, I was kind of like, this is sort of weird that my dad's out here picketing churches. Cause I thought we believe in Jesus. So I don't get it, <laughs> but you know, like I, I didn't get it, you know, I didn't yeah. understand it. Yeah. It's always kind of a weird thing when like, um, people are out picketing other churches or talking bad about other churches. I mean, like we have different sorts of beliefs, but yeah. What did somebody call it recently? They called it like when you're trying to take people out of other churches, like stealing sheep or stealing from the flock or something. I don't know. Right. Which is always confusing to me because, um, you know, it eventually my dad actually decided, you know, uh, there's stuff going on in these self-supporting ministries that I really can't be a part of. Mm -hmm. And so then he made the decision to leave reform and leave three angels and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, then from that point, we ended up actually being in the Adventist church for a while. Um, but you know, then there actually came a point in my life when, um, well, let me back up a little bit, actually. So as I was saying, you know, around eight years old, I can remember deciding that I wanted to be a world evangelist, you know, at the point where I didn't even understand church politics. I didn't understand that kind of stuff about, oh yeah, this church is the right one. And this one's the wrong one. I didn't understand any of that. Simply, I just wanted to tell the entire world about Jesus because I could see that being a part of that meant that I could actually live my life for a purpose greater than myself, you know, mm. um, being a part of that and telling people about Jesus meant that when their life came to an end, that wasn't the end. Yeah. You know, and I've, I've always been, I've always been, even from the time I was a little boy, I've always been this person who had God sized dreams. You know, I've always kind of been, even from the time I was a little boy, I've been of this mindset that, you know, I want to do something big. I want to do something great. I want God to use me to change the world, you know, it's that faith um, of like little children, you know, like nobody has told you yet that, you know, you can't conquer the world with God or any of that, you know? Right. So to make a long story short, because I'm kind of aware of how much time we have to get to me telling some of my stories, long story short, my dad ended up getting kicked out of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, he was in kind of this church where the head elder was more of a GI Butlerite. Mm. And for those of you listening who might not understand what that means, Basically, there was an argument going on between whether we're justified by justified by faith in Jesus Christ or justified by doing the law and our mm. works, right? And this is an argument that's going on within, you know, the Baptist faith, within Adventism, within a lot of the Protestant faiths, you know, um, well, how much is it faith in Jesus that saves us and how much is it actually what we do that saves us, right? Mm-hmm. This has been a this has been a tug of war happening. Um, which in my opinion shows a large misunderstanding of what the gospel and what Jesus Christ is all about in the first place. But it's just sad to see that that that's still going on in the church today. And it in fact is the thing that caused my dad to be kicked out of the church. He was, you know, put on the list of people who are not allowed to preach in seven day Adventist churches. Oh wow! Um, it caused um, a lot of people in the church to kind of label me and my mom and my brothers and my sister as, you know, that's Mike Farr's kids, right? Mm. 
And so um, as a result of that, I got to discover what it's like when you're basically frowned upon by a religious community and you and your family are like, you know, the people that, you know, belong to the person who's teaching heresy, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I watched my dad go back to college and he walked away from faith completely. I remember like the most traumatizing moment of my life was being 12 years old. My dad came during the summer after my my parents divorced. My dad left home. Um, and this all happened because of my dad getting kicked out and deciding that he was leaving the faith. He went to college to become a uh, drug and alcohol and marriage and family counselor. And then he ended up getting into spiritualism. The next thing you know, my dad is like literally taking classes in Reiki and becoming a spiritualist and a Reiki warlock, right? Oh, goodness. <laughs> so like total shift. Oh gosh. Like way over here, conservative Christian and offshoot stuff to finding the truth about the gospel and justification by faith and getting kicked out of the church for promoting that. And, you know, the AT for Adventists, they'll understand this, the AT Jones and Wagner and Ellen White debates of 1888, you know, coming back into my life many years later. Right. Yeah. And then my dad's out of the church, then he's back in college. And then suddenly I'm 12 years old. I'm standing on the ferry going to Seattle with my dad. He came to pick me up after like my parents had been divorced for a couple of years. And he came to pick me up and he said, Hey, I'm going to take you on a road trip and I want to introduce you to my new girlfriend. And oh. da, 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 da. And I'm just like, okay, this is so exciting. My dad wants to spend time with me. Right. Because mm -hmm. as a little boy, it's like, okay, whatever drama is happening in life, my parents are divorced, whatever. I'm just so happy to be with my dad. Right. That, that was my mindset at the time. And until there came a moment standing on the front of the ferry coming to Seattle, I see the Space Needle and all the buildings in the distance, my dad standing next to me. And he says, you know, I taught you that the Bible is the word of God your entire life, but that's not true anymore. Oh. So I just need you to know that, yeah, it's a good moral book. And if you want to read it and follow the things in there, that's fine. But the Bible's not the word of God. Oh. So you don't need to follow it if you don't want to. Oh, wow. What a shift. Yeah. So I'm just standing there on the front of the ferry being like, my whole life is a lie. Like I, I, I'm my mind. I mean, even as a 12, 13 year old little boy, I, my, my brain was just like, how do I process that? <laughs> like, like my entire experience now, I don't even know if it's real. Yeah. And so what, what happened from there? So then you're just like, your world is turned upside down. Like what's, what's next? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, here, here's the thing. There was a part of me when my parents divorced at 12 years old that was angry at God because I had spent years praying that my parents wouldn't get divorced, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when my parents did get divorced, I didn't quit believing in God. And I really didn't actually even quit believing in God when my dad said the Bible wasn't real. I mm -hmm. believed in God, but I didn't know if I actually really could see a path to becoming the world evangelist that I dreamed I would be when I was a little boy, A. And mm -hmm. then B... I was concerned. My dad's not going to be in heaven. My mom's not going to be in heaven. You know, my, my older brother left home, ran off with his girlfriend and went and lived with his girlfriend when he was like 14 or 15. Right. Oh, wow. Um, I very quickly after my parents got divorced, realized I need to go get a job. So at 12 years old, I'm literally delivering newspapers, right. Mm -hmm. And trying to make money to help mom because she's sitting on the couch crying that there's no food. Right. And I don't have the clothes to go to school. So I didn't fit in. 
Um, people picked on me, beat me up because I'm wearing, you know, five and dime and goodwill clothes. Yeah. Right. And uh, <clears throat> back then, and probably even still now, you know, what clothes you wore at school and what brands you had on determined whether or not you were in the in crowd or whether or not you were going to be made fun of and picked on. Yeah. Right. So I'm going through all of this and we end up having to move into the projects and we're like literally oh, unbeknownst wow. to me, we're living right next to the largest meth lab in Washington state. Right? Oh, and our neighborhood is full of drugs and this is the nineties, you know, late eighties, early nineties. So we're talking bloods and crips and, you know, gang activity and drug activity and all of this kind of stuff going on. And I'm being raised in that. Right. Oh, wow. And I find out that delivering newspapers really doesn't make a whole lot of money. And mom needs money for food at home. Then uh, because my mom can no longer homeschool us because of my parents' divorce, I go from being homeschooled to being in the public school system. Oh, that's overnight. a hard shift. Boom. I'm from a classroom of four or five, homeschooled kid. Here I am in the public school system. People are listening to music I've never even heard of, watching oh, wow. things on TV I didn't even know existed because I was from a conservative family. So. Here we go from reform ministries and the church's Babylon to, hey, guys, let's watch MTV, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Brain blown. What's happening? Gosh. And the next thing you know, by the between 12 and 14, and I don't remember exactly when this happened, I go from being a sheltered Christian kid in Pathfinders and going to church to being somebody who's smoking cigarettes and pot, drinking and dealing drugs in order to make money because the people in my neighborhood are like, dude, if you want to take this bag of marijuana over there and give it to these people that we don't know, then we give you this much money immediately. Right. Yeah. And then I figured this out really quick. Even if it's only five or $10 for me to just take it over there and hand it to them, the more I'm willing to do this, the more than five and $10 bills I get. And I get it really fast. Yeah. And then when my mom's crying and we don't have any food on the cupboards, well, there you go. I mean, it's money. And it seems to me the right thing is to help my mom. So here's the crazy thing. I go from being a sheltered little kid, believing in the Bible and thinking I have a call on my life to quickly getting myself into situations that look like good ideas mm -hmm. without any parental guidance. I mean, I remember when my dad drove out of the, the driveway and he left. I was thinking in my head, oh, no, I don't know how to change the oil on the really cruddy car that my dad left my mom. Right. Yeah. So like now I'm going from really feeling like I have options about faith and figuring out what I believe to being in a position to where it's like I don't even have the luxury of deciding what I think is really right or wrong or what the Bible teaches to live. Mm -hmm. Now I'm I'm literally in a situation where I'm constantly living in fight or flight survival mode. And watching my mom live through that while trying to raise a bunch of, of, of kids with a high school diploma. So, yeah, needless to say, um, my life was flipped upside down. But here's the funny part. I didn't quit believing in God. Mm -hmm. However, I was having a real struggle of trying to figure out what was right and wrong and what God would actually allow me to do and wouldn't allow me to do in order to help my mom figure out how to navigate being all on her own with five kids. Yeah, that's like a hard place because you're like you're doing everything you were taught was wrong, but like, you don't see God intervening in that moment. 
And let me be clear. There were a lot of times where, you know, there were times in these moments where I'm making these decisions to smoke cigarettes with the kids in the neighborhood that are like stealing cigarettes from the store. Right. And then bringing them to me and being like, Hey man, you want to smoke a cigarette with us? Right. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I'm thinking this is wrong. And then, you know, but it's like, Ooh, you know, I get beat up and picked on and I want to fit in. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm the, I'm the dumb Christian kid with the funny, uh, you know, bell bottom corduroys because I can't afford the pants that are cool. So, <laughs> you know, these kids are being nice to me and this is my chance to fit in and have a group of people to protect me from the bullies at school. So there's a lot of things that go into that when you feel like you're all on your own. Yeah. But then you go home and you're thinking, oh no, I know my mom thinks cigarette smoking is bad. She wouldn't want me smoking pot or dealing drugs. She wouldn't want me drinking alcohol or being involved in these things. And so here's what ends up happening. I'm in middle school, I'm in fifth and sixth grade, and now I'm beginning to live a double life. I'm a straight A student by day. I'm involved in student leadership. I'm doing all of the things that check all of the boxes so that my mom doesn't know what I'm doing, right? Mm -hmm. And then I'm living a totally different life when I'm not at school with the people in the neighborhood that I'm being raised in, right? Yeah. And to make a long story short, what happens is by the time I'm 19 years old, my life is in a full downward spiral. I'm a 4.0 student at school. I'm a choir president. Whoa. I'm winning choir awards. I'm acting in the plays and everything else. But in my private life, I'm involved in drugs and alcohol and partying and, and all of these kinds of things. And it literally led to a moment at 19 years old where I got in a literal physical fight with my brother. And as a result of that, I had a major collision with the person that I'd become. I had a major uh, emotional breakdown because I ended up getting in a fight with my brother and punching him right in the face as hard as I could. And I was intoxicated. Oh. And needless to say, within religious communities, often when a person is in ministry, my dad was in ministry, there's a lot of pressure for the kids to be a certain way, mm-hmm. right? So my dad, under the stress of all of the religious pressure that he was under doing ministry and all of the political in and out fighting that was going on, um, would often have people within Reform or Three Angels or within the Adventist church criticizing him because of the way his family was. And then he would end up coming home. We would get in trouble and he would end up beating us with a belt. And not in the sense that he was spaking us to discipline us, but it was like he would come home stressed out and angry. And so as a result of God and religion, I'm literally raised as a kid thinking I'm really bad. Mm. I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm never going to be good enough for Jesus and God. And I remember being a little boy going through all of this and, and seeing my parents divorce and going from this shift of being told that the Bible is God's word, right? To being told that it's not. And then literally actually still believing in God myself. And literally, I can remember times being in my room, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, looking out the windows, seeing the clouds in the sky and thinking to myself, pretty soon those clouds are going to open and Jesus is going to come and I'm not going to heaven. Oh, wow. That's a terrible place to be. Yeah. And, and even as a little boy, you know, going through that, that, confusion of the people at church that are angry because your kids make too much noise or you know your your child was chewing gum and that's against the health message or you know different things that were going on in these reform type ministries that are super conservative and are teaching that you keep all of these rules in order to go to heaven right yeah um 
I'm like, well, I'm the biggest disappointment ever. I, I one day I want to grow up to be just like my dad, who's preaching the sermons and singing the music. And I want to be able to make a difference in people's lives. And I want them to know Jesus because I want them to have eternal life. But on the other hand, man, I'm not even good enough to go to heaven because I'm always getting in trouble for not being a good enough kid. And so you can imagine with that being added on top of all of the other confusion that by the time I'm 19 years old in this physical altercation with my brother punching him in the face, I realized in that moment, oh no, I just literally became the very thing that I hated most about my father, which was him coming home and beating us. Mm. I just did physical violence to someone and I promised in my heart I would never become that way or do that because I didn't want to be like my dad in that aspect, right? Mm -hmm. And so I literally have a total emotional mental breakdown in that moment. And I literally, like the party that was going on, there was a bunch of people there. We were having a party, we were drinking. Everybody leaves after my brother and I get in a fight, obviously. And I end up going for a walk in the rain on a gravel road for like an entire mile. And when I came back to my room that I was living in, which was, it was, it was, it was, um, my house had both the main part of the house. And then I was actually in high school. I was living in, um, a garage that I'd kind of turned into my own apartment. And it was the, the garage that my grandfather built because by this point, my mom and I and her, the rest of my brothers and sister had moved in with my grandmother because my mom was struggling so bad financially that we couldn't afford to live in the projects anymore, which was not a disappointment to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, moving, moving out of the meth lab. That's great. We will happily go to grandma's house. We're excited about that, but. Um, you know, and then me moving out and living in the, the garage allowed me to live the double life so that my mom wouldn't know what was going on. Mm. Right. I knew that she didn't know why I wanted to live out there. But anyway, long story short, I come back from this long walk and I end up having this thought go through my head. God doesn't love you. Your life is worthless. You can never go to heaven. Look what you've become. Look at all the things you've done you're totally worthless. Your, your life is meaningless. You know, like God doesn't want you. You're, you're look what you did to your brother. I mean, you're not even a good person. And within 20 minutes, I had decided that I was going to commit suicide. Mm. And I know this was literally the devil's providence. Like he was setting this up, but I'm searching through all of the, uh, the, the drawers. My grandfather had a big tool desk that was out in, in the room that I was, that I kind of in the garage that it used to be like a, a wood shop or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but I turned it into a place to live. And so I'm literally ripping open the drawers and I find this entire set of exacto knives. Mm -hmm. And I literally start slitting my wrists from my wrist all the way to my elbow. And there's like blood everywhere. And right then my sister like comes back to the place where the party was happening. I had locked the door so no one could get in. And she sees through the window on the door what's going on and can't get it open and panics and runs around and finds that I had forgotten to lock the window and was able to get it open. Oh, wow. Crawls in, crawls in through the window, runs over, jumps on me, takes the knives out of my hands, you know, starts screaming. It's a total emotional mess. She's like, you know, you're like my dad. How could you ever do anything to hurt yourself or leave me? Oh, gosh. 
And then in the middle of it, she realizes if I make too much of a scene and people find out what he just did, the ambulance is going to come and take him away and they're going to put him in the crazy house, right? Yeah. So she's thinking through all of this real time. She decides I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm going to wrap his wrists as tight as I can with whatever I can find. And I'm going to tuck him into bed and hope that he doesn't bleed to death. Holy cow. Right. And how old is she? Well, let me see. Um, how much younger is she? She's six years younger than me. And I just. Like 13? Uh, let me see. She's 18, 16 17, 16, 15, 14. Yeah, 13 years old. Yeah, 13 or 14. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, I wake up the next morning and she had wrapped my arms tight enough that I didn't bleed to death. But um, there's blood all over the sheets. Oh. So, of course, my mom finds out. Um, Because I'm not able to hide what has happened. And I end up getting taken out of the home and stuck in a halfway house at 19 years old. Mm. So now I'm I'm literally living in a crazy house on medication because I attempted suicide. Right. Mm -hmm. And. um, Yeah, that's kind of the rock bottom moment of my life where I went from being an eight year old boy with a a big dream about what God was going to do in my life to being somebody who was 19 years old, totally confused about whether I was even going to heaven or not feeling like I had literally become all of the things that my dad had been that I didn't want to be rather than the things I emulated and wanted to be. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now I'm, I'm, now I'm, uh, now I'm not in high school anymore. The entire world has found out all of my friends at high school know I attempted suicide mm-hmm. I, I was actually literally the choir president at the time when this happened. So like everybody knew me, I was in all of the musicals and plays. I was an athlete, you know, and then, oh yeah, Steven attempted suicide and he's in the crazy house. Wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, at that moment in my life, I didn't really think that I could ever actually become the person that I dreamed I would be when I was a little boy. And um, I remember the the lady that was actually the nurse there that would give me my medication every morning. She looked at me one morning. She said, you do know you're not crazy, right? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> she says, listen, um, you're 19. So I just want to tell you something. You don't have to be here. And the medication you're taking is going to make you a ward of the state for the rest of your life. And she said, now, listen, if, if anyone ever finds out I had this conversation with you, I'm going to get fired. But oh, um, you have a car. I actually had a car at that point. My mom had given me her old car and gotten a new one, but I had a car. She's like, you have a car. You have keys. You can leave. And if you sign this paper and tell me that you don't want the medication and you don't want to live here anymore, you can leave. Oh, wow. And nobody and told was, you this. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is awesome. I don't want to be here. So I sign it and take my car keys. Um, called some of my friends, met with them. at. There was a little restaurant downtown. I met them in the middle of the night for coffee. <laughs> and I'm like, guys, I'm going to go to my mom's house and get everything that I can that's mine and put it in my car. And then we're leaving for the big city to get jobs. And we're going to go live our lives now. Like we're getting out of this dumb town. We're going to go start our own lives. Come with me. Right. Yeah. So the next thing you know, here I am with some of my teenage friends running away from home to Olympia. Oh, goodness. Needless to say that ended bad. Oh, (laughs) Um, 
they all made friends and ran off and did other things in life. And I ended up homeless on the streets. <laughs> oh, oh God. Right. And so for the better part of between 19 and 24 years old, I continued to go on this wild journey of trying to discover whether or not I wanted to, you know, continue in my addiction to drug and alcohol or become a Christian and give my life to God and follow the calling he had in my life. I guess, long story short, there were so many different things going on in my life between, you know, 12 and 24. Um, I literally ended up on and off the streets. I ended up having a suicide attempt. I had all of these kind of things go on. And you, you must be wondering by now, like, okay, Stephen, how in the world are you an Adventist pastor at 40 years old, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, how, how did... How are you, how are you now preaching sermons to the Philippines where 8,000 people within an hour are listening to the sermon you just preached, right? Holy cow. Or how are you being invited to speak for um, ACF, which is a uh, ministry in Canada that actually um, creates uh, church fellowship programs on public university campuses? Like, how are you speaking to college kids in Ontario that are like reaching people for Jesus and you know, how did you, how did you end up going to Walla Walla University and getting a, a college degree, right? Yeah. I mean, how many homeless people do you know that have college degrees, right? Yeah, not very many, none. Don't yeah, know very many homeless people how, either, though. <laughs> right. How many homeless people are literally pastoring a church within three years of coming off the streets, right? Wow. Let me tell you one story before we break. All right. I'm going to tell you a story. So there was something that happened to me when I was 12. Now, the reason I'm telling this story is because God is real. Miracles are real. Prayer is powerful. Okay. I'm 12 years old. My parents have just divorced. I come home one day. My mom is sitting on the couch, bawling her eyes out. Now there's nothing more enti entirely uh, terrifying to um, a, a male than a mm -hmm. female crying, especially when it's your mom. Okay. Yeah. I know any, any guys out there listening right now, we know like when a woman starts hysterically crying and something's wrong and you're like, what's wrong? And she's like, I don't know. And then the more you try to help her figure it out, the more hysterical she gets. That's a helpless and terrifying moment when you're a 12 year old kid and it's your mom doing that. I feel like any more. 12 year old kid, boy yeah. or girl, like that's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Boy or girl, but guys, we really don't know how to deal with crying. Like girls might even just go over and crawl on mommy's lap and hug her and it all calms down. Right. Because girls, for some reason, can handle <laughs> crying and emotions <laughs> like that. Right. We just guys, at least from my background, you know, like guys did not cry. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's how I was raised. You don't cry. Even if you get in trouble and get a spanking, you don't cry. And I, I'm not saying that's the right way to be. But I'm just saying that for me, someone having a meltdown and crying like that is just terrifying. So the next thing you know, I'm sitting next to my mom on the couch trying to figure out what's happening. And I say, mom, what's going on? She starts crying more. And finally, I said, mom, um, maybe we should just pray. And I, I don't think I'd really, you know, at least since my parents had been divorced, I didn't want to pray. I, I didn't want to talk to God or anything. But, you know, I thought if I suggest praying, then maybe this is going to make my mom stop crying. Right. 
And then she looks at me suddenly with this sober face and she said, do you know why I'm crying? I'm like, well, that's what I wanted to know. <laughs> I was trying to figure that out a minute ago, mom. Yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm glad we're at that point now. And she's like, it's because, and I can't even believe I'm telling my own 12 year old child this, but it's because I literally do not have any food in the cupboards to feed you. Oh, wow. I have nothing in the refrigerator. There's nothing. I have no food. I have no money. I can't do anything for you. And I can't even make you dinner tonight. And I said, okay, mom, well, can I pray with you? And I don't, I don't know what it was. I mean, I was in a place at that point where I'm, I don't even know if I believe God does anything because I prayed for five years for my parents not to get divorced. Mm. But I thought, I guess in that 12 year old little mind of mine, for some reason, I had a moment where my faith came back, where I had been taught as a child to believe that if you pray, God's going to do something, right? And so in that moment, when my mom was having that emotional breakdown, I forgot my anger towards God or my parents' divorce and everything. In that moment, I knew that the one thing I could do is pray and it could make a difference. And that's kind of like, you know, that's the way that all of us are. I don't know who you are out there listening to this right now, but, you know, when the plane of our life is going down, it's in moments like that where we actually discover the truth about our heart at the very core is that when the plane is going down, when everything's falling apart, when there's no hope and it feels like everything is lost in that moment, we're like, okay, I don't know if I believe or not, but I'm not trying to determine that anymore. Right now, I'm crying out to God for help. And so I remember my mom, when I said, I'm, can I pray for you? She went from wailing and crying to kind of sobering up and telling me what was going on. And then I remember reaching out and taking my mom's hand and I prayed a very simple prayer very simple. God, we don't have any food and we need help. And right when I said, amen, there's a knock on the door. And I remember like finishing that prayer and my eyes are like, my eyes are just like flying saucers, right? Yeah. I'm like, whoa, someone just knocked at our door, you know? And it's almost like for some reason I knew something crazy was about to happen. So anyway, where we're sitting on the couch, there's a TV and then there's a hallway that goes to the door. So you can't see the door from where we were sitting because where we were sitting on the couch faces the wall. Then there was a TV over on the left side on the one wall. And then there's a hallway that goes the other direction all the way down to where the door is. So my mom says, wait here. She gets up, goes to the door. I can hardly wait. I can't anticipate like who's going to be there. So like, I'm like, I'm not waiting on this couch. I like get up, come and I look around the corner. My mom opens the door and there's somebody standing there that actually taught my youth Sabbath school oh, wow. at the church. We weren't even attending church anymore, but yeah. And they're literally standing there with this big box. Okay. And the person comes in and behind them comes another person with another box and behind them comes another person with another box. And behind, by the time it's all done, there's like five or six entire boxes full of food from Costco's sitting on our kitchen table. Wow. Literally came to the house right when I said, amen. Wow. Boom. And so I share that story to say this. Even through all of the stuff I described to you that happened between 12 and 19 leading to a suicide attempt, God was trying to tell me, Stephen, regardless of what your dad said, regardless of what's happening in your life, I'm real. Mm. And there's a text that I want to share before we break and we come back for part two. Yeah. Um, Jeremiah 29, 11. And the reason I want to share this text is we always read Jeremiah 29, 11, but we never read the verse that comes next. And it's a total crime. And so right now 
for all of you listening in out there, I don't know if this is the first time you're hearing Jeremiah 29, 11. If you're someone that's a part of the religious community, you've heard this verse a million times. Kylie, you know the verse, right? Probably once you Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have oh, yep. for you, declares the Lord. Right. Everyone knows this one. So Jeremiah 29, 11, most of you in the religious community know this. Some of you have never heard this verse before. You might not know the reference, but when I start saying it, you've heard it. So check this out. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Not plans for disaster, not plans for evil, but instead plans to give you hope and a future. Now, normally we stop right there. So we're like, oh, this is so great. God has a plan for me. God, God, God wants to give me hope and a future, right? What most people don't know about this letter that Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 29 is it was written to God's people who were literally actually living the worst nightmare ever. They'd been taken mm -hmm. out of Jerusalem and Israel into captivity in Babylon. So they're literally getting this letter in the worst possible situation where they're like literally slaves to a nation that worships false gods and literally has basically made them slaves to help build their empire even greater. Or, you know, many of them were either taken captives or as slaves or even killed by the Babylonian armies, right? Yeah. So they're in a bad, they're in a like God, you know, we know that we sinned against you and we worshiped idols and we did things, but I mean, you've turned your back on us and we are in the worst possible situation. We have no reason to believe in you, right? Yeah. And so in this situation where the people of God in Jerusalem and Israel have turned their back on God, worshiped false idols, and as a result have been taken captivity into Babylon, God is saying, hey, you know what? I know the thoughts that I have for you, not thoughts of evil, but instead thoughts of peace. And I want to give you hope in the future. Now, can you imagine hearing that in that situation? You're in the worst part of your life. And God's like, no yeah, worries. <laughs> yeah. Okay. God, where are you at? <laughs> you know, like, look at us, look what we're in. And, and when we end up in situations like that, we never really feel like it has anything to do with us. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like the situation I was in was because the decisions my father made, right? That's not my fault, but those, those decisions he was making were not decisions that were reflective of him actually believing in or following God, right? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. So here's the next verse though. All of us know Jeremiah 29 and 11 that says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you says the Lord thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope, but we don't know what it says next. And here's what it is. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Verse 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Oh, get this. Verse 14. And I will bring you back from the captivity. I will gather you from all of the nations and from the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I have caused you to be carried away captive or allowed you to be carried away captive if you actually understand it in Hebrew. Here's what God is saying. And this is what I really think that my story is meant to express to anyone listening. I don't care if you're Adventist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Christian, atheist. You're, you don't know. You're agnostic. You, you, I don't know if I believe in God and his power or whatever it is. I don't care where you're at in life. This is what I feel like God sent me to say to you. When you cry out to God and you call upon him, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God is actually right there waiting to reveal that he's always been with you from the very beginning. That's true. And no matter what kind of a situation you're in, just like what happened in my story, 
my mom was crying because we had no food on the cupboards because my dad decided to divorce her and leave. And she only had a high school diploma and couldn't make enough money to even afford to feed her kids. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I cried out to God and prayed, even though I was already smoking cigarettes and dealing drugs and going through hard times and trying to figure out, you know, and then I come home from school and my mom's crying and there's no food in the cupboards and everything's bad. But in that moment, when everything was wrong and bad, and I was even doing things that I felt God wouldn't want me to do, right? When I cried out to God and called upon him, he revealed to me that he was with me the entire time. Mm. Because the moment I said, amen, the moment I said, God, I'm in a really bad situation. And I said, amen, God help me. That's it. A knock came at the door and God was right there to deliver me. So I want, I want you to hear something before we close this part. I don't care who you are, where you're at, or what your situation is right now. God sees you. God loves you. And God has a plan to give you hope and a future. And I want to encourage you. Maybe you don't feel like you know how to pray. Maybe you don't feel like you're good enough to pray. Maybe you don't feel like you're worthy. Maybe you feel like the situation in your end disqualifies you from being able to talk to God. If all you can muster is, is God help me, amen. I want you to know that I believe in a God and I know a God now at 40 years old, pastoring the Pilot Rock and Pendleton churches here in, in Northeastern Oregon. I know a God that's waiting to reveal that he's right there with you. He's waiting to help you. He's waiting to bring you out of whatever captivity that you're currently in. Thoughts of suicide and addiction, anxiety, brokenness, whatever it is that's happening in your life that makes you feel disqualified to talk to God, you're going to find out the moment you call on him that you're one of his sons, you're one of his daughters. And he's going to be right there for you. And he's going to start bringing people into your life. And he's going to start creating situations in your life where he can bring you out of the captivity of sin that the devil has ensnared you in and take you to a place where you not only can be blessed by him in the way that he wants to bless you, but you can become a blessing to every person that God wants to use you to share his love with too. Mm. Thanks for listening. All right. Thank you guys. We'll be back next week with Stephen Farr. So bye for now. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to follow, share, like, and review. Also, you can contact us at our Facebook page. That is God is real. God is good podcast. Or you can email us at God is real. God is good podcast at gmail.com. Bye.